News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's get some more information now about what happened yesterday in Ottawa. The armed man who was arrested trespassing on the grounds of the Governor General's residence in Ottawa yesterday has now been identified as a member of the Canadian Armed Forces. For more on this, we're joined by Global News Ottawa reporter Amanda Connolly. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks very much for being here. I have so many questions about this story. First off, can you explain to us what unfolded yesterday? Yeah, so this all started early yesterday morning here in Ottawa. We started seeing reports uh, shortly before 8 o'clock of a police presence up at Rideau Hall, which, of course, as you mentioned, is the official residence of the Governor General and, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also lives on the grounds there in Rideau Cottage. Uh, we, we heard from uh, from police and from RCMP not long after that that they were responding to what they were calling an armed incident on the grounds. And we later found out that that involved an individual who RCMP say rammed their vehicle through the gate onto the grounds and then proceeded to get out and walk uh, basically to a, a sort of greenhouse type structure on the property there where he was confronted by police. Uh, no one was hurt in this. We do know that the individual is alleged to have had multiple firearms on him at the time, one rifle and two shotguns. But he told police, our sources tell Global News that he told police he didn't want to hurt them or anyone else. So certainly a lot of questions going on here. It took about two hours to bring the individual into police custody. Uh, nobody, again, was hurt during that. So that's certainly uh, something that we're going to be asking a lot more questions about yeah. at an RCMP news conference this morning. That's what I was wondering about, too, that timeline. Why did it take two hours after he broke down the gate to take him into custody? Yeah, that really is kind of one of, one of the things that seems to be raising a lot of questions here. We know that, again, RCMP said that he, he dr- allegedly drove his vehicle into the grounds at around 6.30 a.m. Uh, RCMP began a dialogue with uh, the suspect there, and they basically kind of deployed their emergency response team around 7 a.m., and he was taken into custody around 8.30 a.m. So, uh, again, one of the, I think the big questions here is would it have taken that long if the Prime Minister or the Governor General had been in residence on the property? We know that they were not there at the time. And so going to be a lot of questions about how that response um, unfolded, what went into that, uh, particularly given that sources are saying that the man was armed at the time that he was confronted by police. So uh, again, there's a lot of uncertainty here right now. We don't know the name of the individual involved. That's one of the things that we'll be watching for later this morning. We do know uh, officials have confirmed that he is uh, a member of the Canadian military. Sources say that he was a member specifically of the Canadian Rangers. So that's a group of res- uh, reservists who are responsible for patrolling the north, essentially. So, again, a lot of kind of context around what's going on here is going to be uh, hopefully pr- uh, provided more so this morning when, when we hear from our CMP. Right. You mentioned a weapon that he had with him. Was it just the one? So we're hearing it. We know um, sources have said that he had three guns with him, uh, but potentially two on him at the time he was arrested. So we're not entirely, we're kind of hoping to get some more clarity around exactly what unfolded in that, in, in that uh, case at the moment here. But again, certainly uh, was, was armed, they say, at the time of the incident here. And what we've heard so far as well is that the man was indicating that he wanted to speak to the prime minister and sent him a message uh, saying that he had recently lost his job and expressed uh, frustration about the government payouts that were coming amid the coronavirus pandemic, saying that, uh, sources are telling us he was saying that Ottawa wasn't doing enough. So again, what what the context is around that, uh, mm. I want to emphasize as well, he did surrender to police peacefully and again, nobody was injured. So uh, 
it's certainly an, an, an unusual situation here. There's a lot of things we just yeah. don't know at this time. Uh, so, of course, everyone, everyone being cautious about drawing any kind of inferences here, but going to be a, a lot of um, a lot of questions put to RCMP around the specifics of this and exactly what right. was going on. Now, Amanda, what about previous kind of security issues that have come up on the grounds of Rita Hall? When I was trying to think about it, the only one I could remember was a couple of decades ago involving the Cretchen family. Yeah, of course there there have been uh, not not a lot, but certainly yeah. uh, there there was an incident there when the uh, Jean Chrétien was prime minister uh, involving an intruder at Twenty Four Sussex uh, who was wielding a knife at the time, and again that was a number of years ago. But certainly uh, it's it's not the uh, the first time something of this kind of nature has happened, but it's certainly not common, and so that is I think part of an ongoing conversation here, particularly in Ottawa. There there's not there is a lot of security around things like official residences, but uh, particularly you know, Parliament Hill, for example, is publicly available. Anyone can walk onto the grounds. And that was certainly a conversation that was taking place following the Ottawa uh, the Ottawa shooting back in 2014. Is do, Should there be more security? Should there be uh, further restrictions into the grounds to some of these uh, some of these buildings and and residences and things like that. Right. So again, I think you're gonna we're gonna see some more conversations happening around that. We did see, of course, uh, at the time, a, a real emphasis put on you know these are uh, you know we don't want to create kind of a climate of of fear in the country. Of course, 2014 is very different from where we're at now. And so, again, a, a lot of questions certainly going to be asked about how this unfolded, um, what the police response was like, and kind of what happens going forward. Okay, we'll wait to hear from that. What time is that RCMP press conference? That'll be 9.45 Eastern. Okay, well, up shortly then. Okay, thank you very much, Amanda. Thank you. That is Amanda Connolly, our Global News political reporter in Ottawa. So about half an hour from now here, our time, is when we will hear more from the RCMP about the events that unfolded yesterday in Ottawa. Uh, questions about the timeline of uh, the arrests, of what potentially the motive was here. Uh, but again, hope to get some more answers from that RCMP press conference. You know, we are so lucky to live in such a beautiful country as Canada. And we know as well that it's one of the most biodiverse places on Earth. And there's this new project that has been undertaken to try to identify the more than 300 species that only live in Canada. And get this, a hundred of them are right here in BC. So joining us now to talk about this is Andrew Holland with the Nature Conservancy of Canada. They actually took on this project of cataloging all of these species. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Simi. This sounds like such a big job. How do you do something like this? Well, it took two years, and uh, the Nature Conservancy of Canada worked with NatureServe Canada, which is an organization that uh, connects with all the conservation data centers across the country to conduct a study and uh, basically do tons of research on listing the species that are uniquely Canadian and only found here and nowhere else in the world. Okay, and what are some of those species? Well, there's 308 total across the country that are plants and animals that are only in Canada and nowhere else. And BC, uh, what stands out in this report is that uh, 105 of them, over a third of Canada's endemic species, are in British Columbia. And the reason is due in part to some geographic good luck uh, a few tens of thousands of years ago, Simi. Uh, during the, the, the glacial period, Vancouver Island and Haida Gwaii remained ice-free. So that allowed species to live there while other areas were covered in ice. And so these uh, plants and animals rely on very 
small patches of land, very unique habitats that, that need to be protected. Okay, so what is this process like then, Andrew, when you identify things, do you have to send people out there to look at this, or is this a matter of cataloging? It's cataloging, and it's biologists and foresters going out and uh, looking at uh, records when there's different plants and animal species were sighted. In, in the case of, of your listeners, certainly they would be familiar with the, the Vancouver Island marmot. This is a you know, looks like a, it gets mm-hmm. used for a large squirrel. And there's a, uh, that, that uh, Vancouver Island marmot is endemic to Vancouver Island and the, the high mountains of, of, of Vancouver Island. And so there's uh, been an ongoing effort to reestablish those populations as it is endangered. I mean, uh, your listeners would know that uh, it's found in Strathcona Provincial Park and, and Mount Aerosmith Regional Park, Clayquot Plateau Provincial Park, and a few others. But uh, basically, it's identifying these um, plants and animals that need conservation and their areas. So levels of government and conservation groups can make plans to, to, to ensure that these species don't vanish off the face of the earth. And how do we do that? Well, we buy land or we donate land for conservation. And, and what the Nature Conservancy of Canada does, we're a land conservation organization and we we conserve important areas across the country where there's species at risk so uh people can donate monetarily to conservation groups like ours to allow us to conserve these really important areas uh people can donate land they can sell land to different conservation groups where these species uh, are located and uh, the bottom line is that these are Canadian, this is Canada's responsibility. It really is. There's, we can't count on any other country in the world to step up. And there's not really a plan B for these species since they only live here uh, and nowhere else in the world. We have a responsibility to protect them because otherwise they'll face extinction. Now, is that about the same for every country then, Andrew? Does every country have its own kind of unique species or does Canada have more than other countries? We, we have uh, a, a, an awful lot. There, there are certain countries like Argentina, Cuba, that have certain endemic species, but we, we have a, a significant chunk of them. And, uh, you know, another one in, in Vancouver, there was a, a sighting in the 1970s for the Vancouver Island pygmy owl. It's a bird that was spotted and relies on mature forests and nests. There hasn't been a lot of, of sightings uh, in and around Vancouver, but there's one called the, the hooker's bug seed. It's an actual rare flowering plant uh, found in sandy soils, and it's on Vancouver Island and in the area, and it's ranked uh, nationally as as, uh, secure, so that's good. At least there's decent numbers. Now, Andrew, where can people find out about these things if they want to see all of these unique species here to BC? Well, there's maps that people can check out. They can go to uh, our website, natureconservancy.ca, slash hours to save and they can see the report they can see these maps and and once you go on the map you can zoom in and see exactly where these species are located so from vancouver island Haida Gwaii, the okanagan region mm-hmm. and really for, from a british columbia perspective and across the country you can zero in on those maps and see exactly what's there all right sounds like a plan andrew thank you My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. That is Andrew Holland with the Nature Conservancy of Canada. They have spent two years cataloging all of the unique species to Canada, a hundred of them right here in BC. You can go to their website to find out more. I want you to know 
I've heard your concerns. High public confidence is what we strive for. That was Kelowna RCMP Chief Superintendent Brad Haugley yesterday. Uh, He was talking about and responding to, of course, the video that we have all seen by now, the wellness check that went just horribly, horribly wrong. And it could be a catalyst for massive changes in how the RCMP approaches mental health-related calls. That video evidence showed UBCO student Mona Wang being dragged from her residence by an RCMP officer who had apparently been sent to check in on her after being told that she may be in distress. And as everyone who saw that video knows, that is no way to treat somebody who you may think was in distress. We wanted to talk about the RCMP apology that happened yesterday. Uh, Mona Wang, that UBC Okanagan student, joins us now to talk more about this. Good morning, Mona. Thank you for being here. Yeah, of course. Good morning to you as well. Now, how did you feel about the fact that the RCMP stood up there and apologized yesterday? Yeah, I do accept the apology and you know, I, I think that's very kind of them, but out of all of this, I just want to see some change. That's really what's important to me. I want to see them really take, um, be accountable for their actions and see some kind of punishment or any kind of justice given. An apology is one thing, but I really want to make sure this doesn't happen again. Have you noticed a change in how the RCMP has approached this case uh, since the video was made public versus before people saw the video? Yeah, so I filed the case in January, and although the RCMP knew about the filing, it wasn't until the video came out that Browning was put on administrative duties. And so I don't think it takes a video to do something about a complaint. You know, people have come out after my story and said similar things have happened, but they didn't have the video proof. And so they went to the police station and filed a complaint that was just thrown out. And I think that's awful. I think, you know, when they get a complaint, it should be taken seriously and they should investigate into it. I think everybody had that reaction, right, when they saw your video. Does that, does it make you feel more supported, Mona? Does it make you feel any better to know that people are so kind of horrified on your behalf when they see that? Yeah, it does, actually. I've gotten a lot of support from people online and people in my community, and it really does help me through this time. And, you know, I just think it's really important for people to realize that, you know, mental health issues is not something that's new, and it's not something that that is hidden. There's, you know, one in five Canadians may suffer some kind of mental health crisis in their life, and there's definitely not enough supports or not enough you know, information given to the police on how to handle these and whether or not the police should be handling these in the first place. What do you think is the better way to deal with this, a situation like this? I definitely think that the PAC program in Kelowna that they're really pushing could definitely help. But, you know, on on one hand, it, it is the mental health support that's not there. But on the other hand, you know, it doesn't take medical training to have that level of compassion to know you shouldn't kick someone when they're down. I think, you know, there should definitely be a lot more training on the police um, factor and really, you know, kind of screen to see if they really have that level of empathy. And I, I genuinely don't know if they do. Do you remember kind of that night you talk about the empathy and that's that's what struck me where I thought, how can somebody treat another person like this when you're being called to deal with someone in distress? What do you remember about that night? 
Well, she was very, right from the get-go, you know, she had this idea of me and she was saying, you know, stop being dramatic and, you know, all of all of these really awful things that you should never say to anyone, much less someone who's in mental distress. And, you know, I was like pleading with her because she was threatening to take away my dog and my housing. And I was pleading. I was just saying, you know, don't hurt my dog. Yeah, like even in that moment, right? Like that was what I was focused on yeah. was the fact that my dog could be taken away. And even when I was pleading with her during that, like there was no reaction. She still continued to drag me and, yeah, it was just, it was baffling. How did you recover from that? Um, definitely a lot of support from my friends and family. And, you know, I've been getting a lot of mental health supports as well. And I can say for sure that I'm in a better place than I was in January. And was the school supportive? Um, they definitely were. You know, I think most universities have some form of um support in terms of mental health whether or not that could be expanded is another topic but you know most universities do provide some form of support to their students so you say you accept the apology uh you know from the rcmp but what what would you like to tell them what is your message to them i would say you know to just keep each other accountable for their actions and to really take complaints seriously because we don't file these complaints for no reason <clears throat> and it shouldn't take, you know, such baffling evidence for something to be done. And, you know, I, I feel like there's definitely an unspoken police role where, you know, you take each, take um, care of each other and, you know, you, you kind of just push it aside. And I think that's awful. The whistleblowers that were part of the police force, you know, they end up getting fired for coming out and talking about police misconduct. And that's just awful. You shouldn't be penalized for trying to do the right thing. All right, Mona, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. And good luck. That is Mona Wang, a UBC Okanagan student. Uh, she is the young woman that you see in that awful video, the one who needed a wellness check. Uh, police were called, and then you see her being dragged down the hallway and just treated so brutally by the RCMP officer. Well, Kelowna RCMP Chief Superintendent Brad Hogley yesterday had a press conference where he apologized uh, to Mona Wang and recommended that, yes, they beef up their mental health supports moving forward. But, you know, I mean, Mona made some great points there. It, it's We're talking basic empathy here. Yes, absolutely, we need more mental health supports, more mental health training for officers for how to deal with these situations or maybe, you know, a special team that deals with these situations, but also just the lack of basic empathy too. That is something that feels like you could teach that pretty quickly to officers uh, who need to be taught that. Well, we're all looking for a little something different to do these days, but how comfortable are you with the idea of actually going to see a movie? Yes, at the movie theater. Will there be social distancing? How is this going to work? Well, our Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak with Sarah Van Lang, who's the Executive Director of Communications at Cineplex. You guys must be so excited that finally movie theaters across BC, across Canada, are starting to reopen again. Oh, that we've spent the past, you know, three and a half, almost four months preparing for this day, and we couldn't be more excited. So what do moviegoers need to know? Because I imagine, like most everything else that's reopening, there's going to be a few changes. Yeah, I want, the first thing that I want everybody to know is that our top priority has always been the health and safety of our employees and guests, and we really have used the past um, three and a half months to plan for this day. The day that our doors closed was the day that we started planning for our reopening. So guests 
uh, are welcome, and we and we know that this is important. So we've actually compiled a landing page on Cineplex.com that outlines many, many, many of the measures that we're putting in place. We wouldn't be able to outline all of them, but it outlines many of the, me- the measures that we're putting in place from a health and safety perspective. Um, so you can you can go there, you can educate yourself, and, and make your choice. Let's talk about that $5 ticket offer, too. Is it true you can go see a movie for $5 while you guys are reopening? Yeah, so to welcome movie lovers back to our theaters, we'll be showing popular new releases um, that you may have missed on screens. It's actually some of the titles that were on the screens when our doors closed in March. So the best part about that is that it's going to be $5. So $5 regardless of the showtime, regardless of the film, uh, and regardless of the experience, it's $5. And as you alluded to, it's actually going to be $3 on Tuesday. <laughs> that, uh, that reminds me of my childhood. There used to be a cheap movie theater down the road from us where you could go see a movie for 2 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> It's a bit of a throwback in terms of the pricing, but it's as we as we ease back into operations and uh, as we start to see Hollywood titles coming out on, at the end of the month. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, actually. What movies are you screening right now? And did movies that were supposed to be released during those really bad months of the pandemic, did those release dates get pushed back? They have been pushed back. So one of the things about uh, closing down your theaters for three and a half months is that you get an amazing stockpile of titles for the latter half of the year. So we've got a lot of really exciting movies coming down. We've got Mulan. We've got the new Top Gun coming. There's a new Wonder Woman film coming. So there's a lot of amazing, exciting content that's coming in the latter half of the year uh, that we can all look forward to. and, uh, And we have discounted pricing up until then. That's great. So what I imagine by 2022, we can expect you guys to be screening a film about how a crazy pandemic swept across the world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, didn't you watch Contagion over while we were while while the pandemic was happening and we were all in lockdown? I know that that was one of the top trending movies on the Snowflake store at a a certain point. Yeah, that's right. I heard people saying, wait a minute, this kind of reminds me of the movie Contagion. Got to be honest, I I didn't watch it because there was enough reality for me uh, in my day-to-day life. But uh, yeah, I know that it was particularly popular as well. Well, Sarah, thank you so much and best wishes with the reopening. Thank you so much. We'll see movies. Well, I have a feeling that in the next couple of years, infrastructure projects are going to be really important to getting things back up and fully running again. In fact, the federal government is unveiling a new project for BC later today. We hope to get a preview by talking to Federal Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna, who joins us now. Thank you very much for being here. Hi, Simi. How are you doing? I'm happy to be here, not in person. But, yes, exactly. Uh, on the phone. We haven't had an in-person guest here in months. So yes, it's all on the phone. Uh, so I was talking about infrastructure projects here. How big do you think, how important do you think these projects are going to be in terms of getting the economy back up and running? Look, uh, infrastructure projects are critical. I realize my title is actually Minister of Infrastructure and Communities, and it's really the communities piece that I think we all understand a lot better. We're spending a lot of time in our local communities, and we recognize how much, uh, how important it is to have good community and recreation facilities that we're announcing today, um, to have access to trails and paths in the outdoors. 
uh, to be supporting Indigenous peoples. I mean, we've seen uh, a big uprising in people looking for uh, more inclusivity and tackling ra- systemic racism. So making these investments in Indigenous communities. And that's why today uh, we're announcing projects across BC. So 92 projects. It's $150 million in federal investments. There's also money being put in by the province and municipalities and Indigenous communities. And these are about projects that are going to literally improve lives. So if you take some examples um, uh, of the projects, uh, in Delta, B.C., there's going to be in North Delta a new track facility, uh, eight-lane track, um, which is great. We need people to stay healthy, to come together. Uh, I'm an athlete. I know uh, Minister Qualtrou uh, is an athlete too, but so many people getting access to sports facilities. Um, There's also the Grouse Mountain Regional Park Trail, uh, there's going to be improvements made there, and I know people getting out to nature so incredibly important. And when you look at the projects, a significant number of the projects, 31 projects, are Indigenous. Um, so with Indigenous communities, that can be cultural centres um, to promote Indigenous culture. There's also a clean power project. So these are things that are really, it's about improving lives. It's also about creating jobs, and that's incredibly important. Um, we know we need to get our economy back on track. Um, clearly in a safe way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we're doing. Very excited about these announcements today. Okay, so are these new projects that are being announced? Were these, were these previously on a list? These are all new projects. So as I say, it could be new facilities, community culture and rec facilities. It can be upgrades. Um, there's In West Vancouver, there's a ferry building restoration uh, project. So these are projects that really are very local in nature, mm-hmm. but projects that make a real difference, and they will also create jobs, build stronger communities. And that's what we need to be doing right now as we look at how do we get through COVID time. Um, clearly, we're not out of the woods at all yet, but making sure that we're we're creating jobs, we're growing the economy, and also improving people's local communities. Is this a time then for these communities to think of projects like this that could be done if the federal government has its eye on how to help out? Well, we have an infrastructure program, a $180 billion infrastructure program, and we've been making investments across British Columbia, across Canada, in everything from public transit. So clearly a great interest. I know I've spent a lot of time Mm -hmm. uh, in Vancouver area talking with mayors and transit authorities um, and people about how to get around faster, cleaner, cheaper. And so that's incredibly important. We've been investing in wastewater um, in clean power, uh, in, as I say, community culture and rec, in rural and northern communities. So these investments are investments that pay dividends, both in the short-term jobs, but also in the long-term in creating vibrant communities, which is good for local economies. So, yes, the, the infrastructure program continues. So we're getting, uh, I know BC is, has intakes for, for different opportunities and then, you know, we're, we're committed to moving towards a cleaner future. So continued investments in public transit, in uh, sustainability, um, in projects that improve lives. And I think now we're paying a lot of attention to inclusivity. Um, I think you've seen um, folks really come together. Canadians say it's we need to make sure that we're building inclusive communities. And I'm very focused on how do we invest in all communities so that all kids have access to good facilities. Right. Um, and I think that's, that's incredibly important too. So this is the next phase then, would you say, of kind of COVID-19 recovery? 
Well, this is really, I mean, this is our infrastructure program. While, you know, there's been a lot of focus by our government and, you know, I'm part of cabinet and part of the liberal team, um, including a very strong group of members of parliament in, in D.C. I mean, we've been working on how do we support everyone through COVID-19. And those are kind of the direct supports, the uh, emergency response benefit, the benefits, the support to businesses. But we also still need to be continuing to invest in infrastructure, that every dollar you invest has huge dividends, both in terms of creating jobs, growing your economy, but also social dividends, improving your communities. So we're going to continue doing, uh, we're going to continue doing that, continue doing that, of course, in a safe way. And that's what Canadians expect. I mean, they love their communities, but they want to make sure that they have good facilities in them. They have good public transit, that we have cleaner air, that we have cleaner water. So all of those um, supports that you mentioned, the COVID-19 supports from the uh, federal government, then do you see those like we're, we're getting to the end now, right, of these or like by the end of summer, we're supposed to be moving and thinking about not having those supports. Is that an ongoing discussion within the government then about how much longer that can continue? Look, absolutely. We need to be flexible, though. I think that's the one thing that COVID has taught uh, us as a government that we need to listen to Canadians. And the Prime Minister has been clear that we will always stand up and we will support Canadians through this. Um, and the only way you get an economic recovery is if you deal with the health, the health piece. And so we do need people to make sure they're taking measures to stay safe. Um, and that's why, you know, we're requiring, um, you know, well, and, and working with provinces and municipalities, requiring people to stay home, requiring people to physically dis- distance. And that can be very challenging. It can be challenging for businesses. It can be challenging for individuals. Gosh, it's challenging for parents. I've got three kids at home. Um, oh, and boy. I feel very fortunate. But some, you know, we have essential workers, you know, single moms who are going to work. What did they do with their kids? So I think that there's some very broad reflections, and we're going to continue to work through this. And we need to make sure, though, the economy is only going to recover if we can get out of the health pandemic. And so we do, um, and this is a reminder to everyone, and I know BC is doing very well, and we love Bonnie Henry and everything that's been done in BC, but we all need to not let down our guard because otherwise, you know, we'll get a second wave and it will hit hard. And these investments, it'll be hard to continue to make these investments in infrastructure um, just for safety reasons. But look, we need to be doing multiple things. We need to be protecting Canadians. We also need to be making sure that we're growing our economy and making investments for the longer term. All right, Catherine McKenna, thank you very much for your time. Great chatting with you, Timmy. That is a Minister of Infrastructure and Communities talking about an announcement, an official one coming up uh, this morning, where they're talking about 92 projects across BC that the federal government is going to be pitching in money for. Uh, These are on the smaller scale, not huge things, small things, in local communities uh, to try to move things along as part of their infrastructure program. About $150 million or so on that. You'll be hearing more about it. I don't think you can ever talk enough about mental health supports and things that can be done to reach out and help people. There's a new virtual counseling service for youth aged 12 to 24 that has launched. And this is just to support young people with mental health and addictions issues at no charge. We wanted to learn more about this. So joining us now is Alicia Raimondo uh, from Foundry Virtual, the project manager there. Alicia, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me and good morning. Well, good morning. Tell me, how does this work? 
So it works by um, young people or their families. Their family members can get access to services on here too. Give us a call or they or they can visit our website, uh, foundrybc.ca slash virtual, and they can learn a little bit more about the services. And if it's interesting to them, they can make an appointment. And we offer same-day appointments. Um, we offer walk-in counseling groups, peer support, and we have a lot of amazing services coming up as well, such as, you know, appointments with nurses and doctors and, and uh, many other amazing things that we'll be offering on uh, Foundry Virtual. Well, I, it's, I like to see these things because I think we're starting to pay more, I hope, attention to young people with mental health issues. Do you think that's the case? It's definitely way more talked about and we're really setting up a lot of resources and services than when I was younger. I was, um, when I was younger, I dealt with depression and anxiety and, and even um, a, a attempted suicide and there was not a lot of resources and not a lot of support. And so when I felt better, I really wanted to raise awareness around mental health. And then when we raised awareness, I really wanted to make sure that there was resources that were meeting this increased need now that we're talking about it. And that's something I really love about working for Foundry and creating something like Foundry Virtual is just meeting young people where they're at and giving them the, all of the different services that they might need in one place. Because once you approach a youth, then are they willing to talk about what's bothering them? Young people today, I think, are way more willing to talk about um, the issues that they're going through and the things that's bothering them than, than I think when I was younger. I think the thing is, is that they're willing to talk about it if we're willing to listen and we're willing to meet them where they're at and support them. And I think that's something that I'm really excited that we get to be able to do for them. Oh, once again, where can people find out more information? Yeah, people can give us um, give us a call at one eight three 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 zero eight. 6379 or head to foundrybc.ca slash virtual and all of the information will be there. All right. Thank you so much for your time. No worries. Have a great rest of your day. You too. That is Alicia Raimondo with Foundry Virtual. This is a new virtual counseling service aimed at youth aged 12 to 24 that they have launched. And this will help young people with mental health and addictions issues at no charge, too. So if you know somebody or if you are somebody who would uh, like that service, you should definitely be checking that out. Well, there are a couple seat sales going on over the last few days to entice people to buy airline tickets. But sounds to me they're going to have to do some enticing because once people heard that airlines like Air Canada and WestJet were no longer going to be uh, keeping those middle seats free for social distancing purposes, well, I think a lot of people thought, well, maybe I'm going to put a hold on that flight domestically that I was thinking about taking. And still no word really from the federal government about how they think this is acceptable. What are the health complications? complications, repercussions that might arise from this. Well, federal NDP health critic Don Davey says it's time for Transport Canada to do something about this, and he joins us now to talk more about it. Thank you very much for being here. Great to be with you, Simi. What do you think the government should do about this? Well, I I think that uh, it's absolutely clear that the federal government has to immediately implement mandatory rules for physical distancing aboard passenger aircraft in Canada. You know, it's been optional up to now, and as you pointed out, Air Canada and WestJet on uh, July 1st have chosen to drop their voluntary physical distancing policies, and uh, and there's some airlines even that are charging passengers a fee to keep the seat next to them open. So this goes directly against everything we're being told about uh, public health, and I think it should be, it's a dangerous loophole that needs to be closed. Has this been addressed at all by the government? I know people have asked. We asked to talk to Transport Canada about this and no response. 
No, and it's it's puzzling because Transport Minister Garneau, he has uh, called physical distancing the most important measure, in his words, in response to COVID-19. So you have to question why airlines are being treated differently than uh, all other businesses across Canada. But up to now, it's been radio silence from the minister and, and the Liberal government. So what's going to happen here, do you think? I'm just going to move forward. Are we just kind of waiting for bad news? We already have four flights that have an alert on them. Well, I, I would hope not. And, uh, you know, some of these airlines like WestJet, they do fly into the United States, into some hot spots like California, Florida, and Nevada. And uh, now we have, of course, Dr. Bonnie Henry and, and BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, who are weighing in, expressing their concern. And and I, I really, you know, we're seeing flare-ups in the United States. We, re- we cannot wait for flare-ups to happen here. We can't jeopardize the progress we've made. Uh, simply because the commercial interests of the airlines uh, are, are dictating policy here. So what is the best way to approach this? And like, I mean, are airlines at all inclined, do you think, to help people out with this? Are you, are you, do you think they're doing a good enough job with the sanitizing and cleaning of the airplanes? Well, I think they're doing everything that they can. But, um, but look, what the airlines are saying is that if you wear a mask and with temperature checks, that that should be sufficient. But, but that's directly contrary to what Dr. Teresa Tam is saying, who said that masks are no substitute for physical distancing and temperature screening is ineffective, particularly because we know now that people can spread uh, COVID-19 asymptomatically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they've been voluntarily doing this up to now, the airlines, and Transport Canada has, has failed to act. So now that we know that the airlines are moving forward, I mean, everybody has been in an airplane, uh, Simi, so you know you're elbow to elbow and people are crammed uh, row to row together with recirculated air. It, it just stands to reason it's common sense that you that this is a, a, an environment where you have to have physical distancing. And, and I think the government has to ensure that's going to happen because the airlines, I, I know they've, They've suffered a lot of economic losses, but that can't be a substitute for sound public health. Do you think that the airlines then need an economic incentive to make this happen, like more government support? It could be. It could be that. I mean, maybe they have to make price adjustments to their seats, uh, or maybe the, the government has to step in in some way. But but I think those, uh, you know, as difficult as those decisions might be, it's better than uh, putting Canadians at risk and risking another flare-up of COVID-19 just when we're starting to reopen our economy. Is this something that you plan on talking more about? Absolutely. I raised this in the health committee about a week ago when Transport Canada came to our committee, and that's that's what started raising my concern, is they, they didn't seem to be getting this. And now that we're seeing, as I say, the flare-ups in the United States, I think the, the messages are clear and, and the government's got to act. And what have you heard from the airlines then, if they did come to the committee, and what do they have to say? Well, they didn't really address this directly. I mean, they, they did talk a lot about the, the terrible financial situation they're in, which, which of course, we all understand and empathize with. Uh, Transport Canada, again, gave a very convoluted, I thought, an indirect answer by just talking about the layered approaches they're taking. But if, if you just focus on temperature screening for, for a moment, Dr. Tam pointed out that during the SARS outbreak, that Canada scanned over 6 million people on entry and exit from air, aircraft, and we didn't detect a single case. So when airlines say, well, we're using temperature screening as, as a means of, of say, uh, you know, making people feel more comfortable about flying, well, we know that, that that's not effective and it doesn't work. So um, 
you know, I don't think the airlines should be treated any differently than any other industry in the country. We're not letting restaurants, theaters, uh, other other uh, places like that, grocery stores, we're not letting them violate physical distancing guidelines. I see no reason why we should be letting the airlines do it, particularly when I think it's a, a more dangerous environment. All right, well, we'll wait to hear more about that. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for yours, Sydney. That is Don Davies, the federal NDP health critic, who is uh, speaking out about the issue of airlines like Air Canada and WestJet no longer um, keeping that middle seat free on airplanes. And that is a big deal for a lot of people because, like, just think, you felt crammed in before, right? That was before we knew what a concern COVID-19 was. And now that we do know, and we know that close proximity like that uh, can definitely cause you to catch this thing. Now it's a huge concern uh, for airlines. They say it's about their economic health. They need to start selling these middle seats to generate more revenue. But is that more important at this point than keeping people healthy? You've already got, you know, four alerts from some flights, domestic flights, actually, where someone later was found to be diagnosed with COVID-19. Now, for more information on those flights, uh, to make sure that you weren't on them or somebody you know wasn't on them, you can find that at globalnews.ca. Let's talk about this mystery that is making lots of headlines locally kind of gruesome. Sea lions in BC waters, a number of them have been washing up on shore without their heads. Our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Andrew Trice, who's a professor at UBC and director of the Marine Mammal Research Unit. I've just been reading about this recently, but you are a guy in the know. When did you first start hearing about these headless sea lions washing up on BC shores? Well, I guess I started hearing about it uh, just over a month ago. Um, but by the time the news got to me, I think it was old news. And then this week, I hear that even more animals are being found, and that becomes even more disturbing. There's simply just way too many headless sea lions uh, being found on BC beaches to be to be anything except uh, somebody purposely going out to destroy our wildlife. That is really, really bizarre. So. These don't match a natural pattern of a predator who would be attacking these animals. Um, it doesn't. So we certainly know that when uh, marine mammals die, and some of them do die of old age and, and medical complications and things like that, and their bodies will often wash ashore. But when that happens, those are usually emaciated animals. You can see that they were sickly to begin with. And, um, and many times people will try to recover some body parts from them. But in this case, the images we're seeing are of very healthy-looking animals, except that they're missing their heads. So it points to uh, some sort of a catastrophic death, and the most likely explanation is gunshot. Wow, so this would be someone aiming for the animal's head, shooting them, and then their carcass washing ashore without the head. That's right. And, uh, and whether or not... Um, and most often, animals that are going to be shot, um, shooting them in the head is the quickest way to dispatch them. Um, and maybe someone is trying to recover the evidence. Uh, maybe it's something else. Maybe someone's going up there and wanting to bring back the heads as trophies and so they can gloat and uh, share selfies with their trophies. We just don't know, except that what we do know for sure is that this is not normal behavior. Well, and that kind of takes me to the next twist in this story, which is a woman over on the island in Parksville said that she saw a man 
cutting apart a dead sea lion and then taking the skull with him. Yeah, and I've, I've been shown one picture of, um, of a skull um, with a person. And when I look at that picture, what I see is an animal that has been de- decomposing on a beach or some site for an extended period, for many, many months, uh, perhaps six months or so, uh, because the skull is very, very clean. And if it was off a freshly dead animal, you would still have all the flesh, the hair, the fur, uh, and meat on it, and it looks very, very different. So I would say in this case, this appears to be somebody that did find a dead animal that was intact, uh, but had uh, decomposed and had been there presumably for many, many, many months. So it's very different than the headless torsos we're seeing of a freshly killed animal. How damaging to the local population could it be if there is someone out there or a group of people who are purposely killing sea lions? Um, in this case, it isn't the damage is, is um, going to cause a population decline. But what it, what it does speak to is is some people's attitudes towards animals. And, and, and that's what I find most disturbing, is that someone would think that this is acceptable behavior to go out and just kill animals and take their heads. And I think that that is just um, despicable behavior uh, to treat our wildlife like that. It's one thing for those that hunt, that consume what they kill, and our indigenous people have that right to hunt and consume brain animals. Uh, but nobody has the right just to go out and do unethical, inhumane things to animals. And in this case here, shooting animals simply to destroy them and to take their head, it makes no sense. That that is is just plain cruel and and wrong. Yeah, I got to say, as an animal lover myself, I also find this really disturbing. It's it's a really bizarre story. It is. And if you do that to a sea lion, what else would you do it to? Uh, You know, it speaks to, I think... um, uh, just the, that's the dark side of some people, uh, that they would do this. And I guess the other thing that concerns me is that um, this sort of activity is sort of being promoted almost like uh, through um, hate. There's hate of seals and sea lions. And for some people, they would like to blame their problems with fishing, uh, the decline of salmon, some of the stocks, that it's all the sea lions' fault and point the fingers and then come up with a solution and say, let's just kill them all. And certainly we have some groups in British Columbia that are advocating very hard to remove half of all of our seals and sea lions in British Columbia. And I think this type of behavior is probably feeding on those emotions and the emotion that some groups are doing, uh, putting out to, to see this bad behavior go on. At the end of the day, if this is just the tip of the iceberg and it's spiraled, Further, well, if they do get their wish for the move of marine animals, so they're going to do so much more harm. They will cause our population to decline, and they'll cause the population of killer whales to decline. The ones that are here every single day in the CBC feeding on the seals of sea lions, well, you're taking away their food too. And so it's going to have repercussions for the ecosystem. And I'd like to think this one here, this pump, can be nipped to the bud before it's further. But what we're seeing here is a very disturbing pattern. It's new, and it seems to be uh, being fueled by this um, frustration and this hatred that some people have against our seals and sea lions in British Columbia.